Welcome to LOA Today. I'm Walt Thiessen. With me today, the man who is thoughts become things, Neo-Positivity. This is your daily dose of happy. We are so happy you decided to join us today. And speaking for myself, I'm really happy that uh, where I am right now, I'm in Connecticut. We have a gorgeous autumn afternoon. The sun is shining, nice, comfortable temperatures. It's a great way in my mind, to get the, the weekend going and to make it even better than that. I got my good friend, Neil Positivity, joining us here on the set. Good to see you, Neil. How you doing? Life is good here in Florida. The sun is out, but it's a little bit colder. Perfect football weather. I'm there feeling, you go. I made a couple, right. shifts, a couple shifts based off of what I learned in this show and really solidified them. And I am in a, you thought I was positive before. I'm in Uh-oh. a different headspace now. I'm Uh-oh. in a different place now. How, how much higher than positive is positive? Uh, I'll just put it like this. Don't ever tell me the sky's the limit when there's footprints on the moon. And that's just this galaxy. You know, that's just okay. this. We don't know how many there is. So this is true. Yeah. Plateaus, we just keep hitting them. I love it. And our friend uh, Debbie G is uh, on vacay in Hawaii with her loved one. Yeah. So she's having a good time there. She'll be back, of course, to rejoin us. But uh We are not bereft as usual. We have a guest joining us today, and it's a guest who knows Neo because Neo was on her podcast. Linda, oh, I screwed up. I forgot to ask how to pronounce your last name. So here I go. I got to try to guess it right. Linda Bjork. Ooh, that was excellent. And I have had so many variations. My name is Bjork. It's B-J-O-R-K and it's short and it's not as scary as it looks. But boy, I have had even just this week, I was called Brock and Borjak and Baroque. And I mean, there's all sorts of creative interpretations of those five little letters. So you nailed it. Well, Borg is not Borg Borg is a stretch. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I it's, thought it's that like too. They look at those and they think it's got to be something weird. So I'm going to give my best foreign flair to it. Borzak. Nope. Okay. <laughs> well, two points for effort, but that's about it. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. But uh, you, you are. Uh, you have one of the, one of those interesting self titles. I love the titles that people give to themselves as they they develop their you know their coaching practices or whatever uh, programs they're offering. You're a personal development expert. And yes, that is I. My mission is to help people become their best selves, yeah. and I love that because it doesn't mean that there's a one size fits all. It doesn't mean that we all have to be Walt, we all have to be Neo, or we all have to be Linda. It's Walt is the best Walt that he can be. And Neo is the best Neo that he can be. And I am the best me. And we have lots of variety and it's just wonderful. It's wonderful Ooh. to find out what we can do and what we can become. I like that. And, and you're also the creator of LIFT and LIFT is an acronym that stands for the love and forgiveness freedom technique. Now, when I read that and when I heard about that, I thought, of course, about emotional freedom technique, often, often known as tapping. So I'm thinking, well, it's probably not the same as tapping, but it has some similarities. So I wonder what that's going to be all about. So what's Lyft all about? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I just created a new video series called How to Heal Your Life from the inside out. And it's available for free on my website, which is hopeforhealingfoundation.org. And it includes using a, a technique to be able to access our subconscious, to be able to help reprogram, to be able to let go of those self-limiting beliefs and to be able to, you know, overcome our self-sabotage. And it comes from really, it, we got to start on the inside and we got to work our way out. You know, most people think that our life, my life will be happy when, and then you can mark all these things that are going to happen to me from the outside. Like I'm going to get a raise. I'm going to have this much money in my bank account. I'm going to have a relationship that looks like this and feels like this. When I step on the scale, it's going to show this number or whatever it is that we're looking for. And the real solution and real happiness as, as people who understand law of attraction know is it's what we bring from the inside. So when we can heal ourselves from the inside out, when we can find out what it is that's holding us back and be able to let those things go and be able to really learn how to love 
ourselves, which can be tricky for a lot of people. And, and sometimes we don't know why we don't love ourselves, but there's a reason and we can find it. And then forgiveness. Forgiveness is a concept that's often misunderstood. Like if, if you hurt my feelings and I say, I forgive you, a lot of times people think that means, oh, okay, that's okay. Like, it's all right. That's okay. And a lot of times when you are dealing with abuse, when we're dealing with trauma, when we're dealing with these kinds of things, we can never say, oh, that's okay. Because it wasn't okay. Right. And now a time is going to make it okay. So forgiveness doesn't mean, oh, that's okay. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that person deserves your forgiveness. It doesn't mean that the scales of balance have been, or scales of justice have been balanced. It means I choose to let this go and to move forward. And so that is what it's about, is if we learn how to do those things, to love ourselves, to be able to recognize what's going on and to let the past go, then we can live a glorious future. So, and it actually does include um, some EFT tapping as part of it. So. It does. Okay. <laughs> so, so uh, is that part, is there more to the technique than, than just the tapping part? What, what is the technique part like? Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh, yes. Did you have a question, Neil, too, or? No, I was going to say, is mantra or something while you're tapping? Like, what's the, what's the, because, you know, I'm going to try this immediately. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I've got the video because it's, I mean, it's, it's free. It's available. I, I want to be able to help as many people as are willing to listen. And what is and the link we, for that? You got the link? The Hope for Healing Foundation.org. And you can access it from the homepage, but there's also a little tab that says free stuff. So you can go there and we have lots of free things. We have free video courses. We have free audio courses. We have free downloads. We have lots of things to be able to help people. So the, the technique includes so many different modalities. It includes visualization. It includes tapping. It includes sophisticated frequencies. It includes, um, gosh, I can't even think of everything right now. It includes doing lots of, of small and simple things to help slightly overload the brain, which helps put the brain in a hypnagogic state so that we can get beyond just the conscious into the subconscious. And it involves um, lots of different things. It, it, it's, uh, I have one of the videos explains all of the, all of the modalities that are being used and why they work before it goes into actually implementing them. So the it's a video series. There's 15 short little videos. Each one is between three and 15 minutes. So they're very small, simple, bite-sized little pieces of information that explain why this works, what we're going to do, and then go ahead and actually give some demonstrations for how to do it so that people can do it on their own. And it's so wonderful when we have, uh, there are so many different healing modalities, so many things that work. And I love that. I love that there's more than one right way to do things. Mm -hmm. And what I share with the lift technique, I love because it has some advantages in that one, it is something that a person can do in the privacy of their own home by themselves for free. And another thing that I love about it is it works. And so those are two really good reasons to um, give it a try. You used a word I had to look up actually while you were talking to, I, I did not know the word hypnagogic. I had to look it up and, oh, it's relating to the state immediately before falling asleep. Okay. Right. I learned something new. That's good. Besides yeah. this wonderful thing that you're talking about, I learned something else new. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is the state. One of the re the definitions of it is the state you go in right before you go to sleep. So a lot of times when we do our positive affirmations, there is that little bit of space before you go to sleep. And as you're waking up where your brain is a little bit more open so that mm. we're able to access the subconscious and not just bounce off the conscious. And this is so important for making any type of lasting change in our life because research shows that our brain, our, the activity of our brain is 95% unconscious. Mm -hmm. And that includes lots of different things. Like I don't think about my heart beating. I don't think about breathing in and out. I'm not consciously paying attention to digesting my food. All of those things are included in our unconscious, but also that includes our subconscious programming, which we, um, we developed this when we were little, when we were mm -hmm. tiny, when we were born, we started up with this beautiful blank slate and we paid attention. It's like, who am I? What am I like? What are my limits? What is the world like? 
What are other people like? Uh, how do I interact with money? How do I interact with other people? And we, we, we figure out all of these things to the best of our little minds can handle. And then for most of us, we just go ahead and lock that into place. And then we continue to use that for the rest of our lives. And that is our default mode. So whenever we react automatically to something, that is us using our subconscious programming. Our brain is so amazing. It's just so efficient. It doesn't want to say, oh, let's figure out what to do over and over and over again. It kind of puts a pattern into place and says, oh, okay, in this situation, I will respond like this. Okay. And if we're not consciously thinking of it, if we just react, the rub. then that's those subconscious programs. And if our subconscious programs are good, that's awesome. But for hmm. most of us, we have to do some upgrades throughout our life because when we're small, when we're little kids, we, we either maybe have something that happened that was bad and we interpret the world from that or we can misunderstand things that happen. And for me, that's part of why I do what I do is trying to overcome those subconscious beliefs. Now, my parents are like the coolest people in the world. If you saw them, you would love them. And yet, one of the things I had to overcome was childhood emotional neglect, which mm. is so interesting because my parents are good people. But childhood emotional neglect is something that unfortunately is really easy to do. When I was six years old, my mother was enduring a, a, a trauma, a personal trauma in her life. And all of her focus and all of her attention was there. And my dad was supporting her. And I was invisible. And it was, it was not that I had been invisible from birth. It was I existed and I was gone. And I was so confused. I'm this little girl. And it's like, obviously, it's my fault. Oh, yeah. What mm -hmm. did I do? Um, you know, I, it must have been really bad. Mm -hmm. And I can't figure out what it is. And I am unlovable. I am worthless. I am invisible. And then that pattern just locked into place carried me for decades to come. And you know, it's interesting. You can, you can live a life when you feel like you're not good enough. And when you feel like you're invisible mm -hmm. and you know, you, you can do good things. Sure. But then later on, I had my personal trauma that just wiped me out and I fell into depression. I struggled with social anxiety. I thought, life is no fun and I would really prefer not to play anymore. Mm -hmm. And, um, I thought this is my new reality. This is as good as it gets. And there is no hope for me. It felt literally like I had been dropped into this deep, dark pit where there were no windows and there were no doors mm -hmm. and there was no way out. And I just thought, I guess my job now is to endure. And I was in that place for about five years. And it's not, every day is not the exact same. It kind of, kind of goes up sure. and down a little bit. And then uh, my sister, who was at that time training to become a life coach, she invited me to come to this women's retreat. And she says, oh, I'm going to teach people how to be happy and how to live joyful and get the most <laughs> out of their life. And I've rented this condo in the mountains. And for three days and three nights, I'm going to teach people. And do you want to come? And I thought, heck no, 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 no. <laughs> Because I was struggling with social anxiety, I, I didn't think I could handle being around other people for day and night. And I was stuck in a deep, dark hole with mm -hmm. no windows and no doors. And so I thought, there's nothing you're going to tell me that's going to make any difference because I'm stuck. So I don't want to go. But even though I didn't want to, the idea just wouldn't leave my head. And I thought, well, maybe this is something that I need to do. So I gathered my courage together and I went and I'm so glad that I did because that decision really changed my life. It was as if my sister lowered a ladder down into my deep, dark hole. And she showed me a way to climb out. And I've learned so many things from this. I, I've learned that um, healing, it's, it's not like flipping on a light switch. It's not, uh, it's more like a sunrise. 
where the change from moment to moment might be imperceptible, but it does come. And, and like I say, it was a ladder climbing out. It, it wasn't an elevator with a press of a button. I'm instantly where I want to be. It took effort. It took you to climb out. Time. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm out and I remember what it felt like to be in, I just feel so passionate about offering a ladder to anyone who feels stuck and trapped in a dark place. Mm. I need people to know that there is hope for healing. And I, I want them to just know, hey, you're not alone. You're not the only person who's been through this. And you don't have to stay stuck. So that's why I do what I do. I love it. That's fabulous. By the way, Neil put a link in for the people who are listening on the various social media channels about how to find the website. I will also include it in the show notes so people will be able to get there very, very easily because uh, we, want, we want to make sure everybody can can find that set of videos to give their life the lift that, it, that they really need. But I, I love that you're doing that. I love that you're giving people that ladder that, you know, it's, it's basically, here's my hand. Let me pull you up. I mean, it, it actually reminds me of a joke that was told on a television show. It really does. It, it was, it was an old series. I'm sure everybody's heard the, the, of the West Wing. And it was told on one of the episodes of the West Wing. And it's the story of a guy who falls down in a hole and he's down the hole and he looks up and he sees a priest walking by that he knows. He says, father, I'm down this hole. Can you help me? And the priest writes out a prayer, throws it down the hole and walks on. Hmm. <laughs> and then he, he's sitting there and then he, then he sees, um, a politician walk by. He says, mayor, I'm down this hole. Can you help me? And the mayor writes out a proclamation, throws down the hole and walks on. And then he says, oh, wait a minute. I see my friend, Joe. I'm stuck down this hole. Can you please give me a hand? And Joe says, sure. He jumps down to the hole. And, got, and the guy says, well, wait a minute. How am I going to get out of here? You, you, we just made the matter worse. You just jumped down into the hole. He says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Okay. You know the way out. You're, you're, you're showing, you're jumping into the hole and showing people the way out. I don't ever want to jump in that hole again. <laughs> I like the joke. I like the story. You caught me off guard. I was just going to put your hand in or climb on shoulders or something, but yeah. You send the ladder down from the top. That's what she doing. <laughs> yeah, I will stand at the top and I will lower the ladder down. I, I don't want to play that game again. That was not fun. I don't blame you. Yeah. When you've been through something that's traumatic like that, you don't really want to revisit the trauma. It's quite understandable. But yeah. now, Neil, when, when you were on Linda's podcast, give us a, a, a taste of what you got, if you can remember. I mean, cause you did, you were telling us earlier, you did like, you know, a hundred million podcasts this year. But, uh, it, what can you remember about what you were talking about with Linda? I'm curious. This is what I can remember about all my podcasts that's really a shame. And, and I, and, and I started to say this to the, uh, hosts as I went, they were interviews of me. And I'm like, I want to know more about you. I want to know <laughs> when you learned about the law of attraction, where you learned about it. And so that's my, and that's why I try to get them to come, you know, visit the summits so we can all get a, a taste of it. Mm. So like I said, she interviewed me, she got the best of me and I never got a chance to really dive into her and hearing all this and taking notes as she goes, the whole lift. And, and I love how you said that, um, about life, you know, you were over it and you didn't want to play anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's something about the word play. You, you you acknowledge it as a game with a bunch of tests and a bunch of rules that if you violate, it's not going to be a fun game. And I, and I love how you acknowledge it as a game. It's a really big thing that a lot of people don't do. They don't see life like that and they, they need to. If people think that you get that job off a flip of a coin. Are you lucky or not? I was grew up with that atmosphere. Am I lucky or not? So I love that. A game means you have control. You can step out of bounds. You can screw up. You can slack off, but you are in control. Uh, so I really wanted to key in on that. Um, and another thing I wanted to say about your childhood, the way you were raised. I, it's so funny because I meet so many people and I learn so many different things. I had, I was raised by just my dad, uh, but he was a great father, but very absent, much like yours. Um, but the circumstances were different. Yours were, you know, your father was sitting to your mother. And so you were kind of like, where, you know, where am I sitting at all this? My dad was stuck at work all day. 
You know, he was an undercover cop and they worked from three in the afternoon till one in the morning. So by the time I got home from school, he was gone. And I went to sleep at 10 at night. So by the time he got home, I was asleep. So, you know, four days, four or five days a week, uh, he just wasn't there. And it was just me and my older sister on an island. You know, find your own food, make your own way. You better do your homework and study. You know, so it became an independent thing because me and my sister were not the best friends. So it became me just in the house, making my own decisions, kind of raising myself, uh, myself, you know, based off of some of the, you know, what my dad would teach me. So, yeah, like, I don't know, just dissecting what you went through and what I went through and the lessons I can learn now hearing that. I love that. I love that. And as we talk about, so um, there's a book called Running on Empty, which explains about childhood emotional neglect and how it fits under so many different categories. This is the kind of thing where you're watching Ferris Bueller's Day Off for those who are old enough to do <laughs> that sort of thing. And you've got the kid with that, you know, his dad's got this beautiful car that all he does is rubs it with a diaper. It, it can happen in those kind of situations with people who are successful people who are working hard, people who are doing their best. It doesn't mean that we didn't get anything. It just means we didn't get enough. And for a lot of us, it means we felt like we had no one to turn to, no one to talk to, no one who would listen to us, that we had to raise ourselves. And, you know, little kids raising themselves, they do the best they can. And if we're still standing, that means we survived. But most of us need to go back and rework some of those lessons that we learned. Um, because especially if it's a traumatic type of a situation, then um, we learn survival. We learn fear. We learn I want to ask you real quick. I want to ask both of you before I forget this question. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it about us as human? I think everybody's going through something in their childhood that has caused them to believe this that I'm not loved. I'm not good enough. Or something like that. I'm, I'm learning everybody has a form of imposter syndrome in them uh, since I found out what it was a, a month or so ago. Um, what is it about us as people where when something in our childhood is lacking, we just attach it to our fault? What is okay. that? So there are different theories. If you're familiar with Dr. Gabor Mate, he talks about um, childhood trauma and he has an excellent uh, documentary. It's called The Wisdom of Trauma. And in that documentary, he explains part of the reasons why he believes that that is the case. And that is when we are children and say often the, 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 the way that we maybe didn't get help or maybe even were hurt, it's by someone that we are dependent on. So if it is my father, if it is my mother, if it is my babysitter, and I'm the child, I am completely dependent on them. I have to trust that they're the good guy. I have to trust. And so if there is a, if there is a fault, if there is a bad guy, it has to be me. Mm, okay. So, um, when we, um, and, and it's interesting because when we're, when we're children and we're, we're creating this, this kind of mind map, this, this, this pattern of who we are and what we are. And if that locks into place and then we grow up, we can have an adult body being run by this little child inside. And it's kind of like we're life is a car and we're driving. It's the little kid who is in the driver's seat and the adult is in the passenger or the back seat, just going along for the ride. And if we can recognize that, this is how we create cyclical generational patterns because we can have children who are being raised by people who are in adult bodies, but they're still being run by that scared, hurting little inner child. So if we want to, to stop those cycles, if we want to heal, if we want to progress, then we need to put the adult in the driver's seat. Does that make sense? When, yeah. we're, when we're little kids, if, if we're like a wounded child and then we go to adaptive child, it's like, okay, okay, okay. This is what life is like. This is what I need to do to survive. And then you lock that into place. Then you, then you behave that way forever until we can go back and say, okay, okay, where did that come from? 
and how do I fix it? So it's kind of anyway. like it's kind of like a separate DNA strain. Like our childhood has created a specific DNA and we live by it for the rest of our lives unless we choose to enlighten ourselves or whatever, however you want to refer to it. And I love that. And that's actually a, a, a good analogy. And there is what you're saying is also not only figuratively, but a little bit literally true. If you're familiar with epigenetics, that we actually do attach to our DNA, these things. And again, that becomes generational. So we can, we can actually get to deal with, you know, not only our crap, but our parents' crap and you know, grandma and grandpa's. <laughs> and it's, it's, I mean, it is what it is, but the good news is now that we're aware of it, um, we actually have tools to be able to get rid of it, which is awesome. Vice versa to flip the script. I watched Ancestry.com, uh, those type of shows, like Who Do You Think You Are, mm -hmm. where they trace people back generations. And every single celebrity they've had on their show was traced back to some kind of royalty, some kind of governors or senator, all the way back to like medieval times, kings and stuff like that. And so it's like, they're definitely, you could tell it's a pattern. They're definitely bringing some of that old thought foundation of I'm royalty. I should be treated this way by the world, by physics, by finances. And they, they're born into that and they definitely maintain it. So yeah. And, and broke families, I know have been broke. <laughs> Right. And how beautiful that you brought that up, because that goes back to law of attraction, how the message that we send out seems to actually come back to us. And I had a friend who put it this way. I loved it. He said, whatever message you send out into the universe, the universe will respond. This is true. Mm -hmm. Here's some more evidence to support that. And I, I loved that. I love the way that that was worded. It's crazy. We have more power and control over not only what we do, but what happens to us than most people realize. And it, it comes from that. This is who I am. This is how I deserve to be treated. And people reflexively do that. If I say I am garbage, and I deserve to be treated like garbage. Then people say, okay. And if I say I am royalty and I deserve to be treated with respect, then people say, okay. And it's, it's challenging to make that switch because like you said, Neil, it feels like, oh, well then we're just born lucky or not lucky. And there's nothing we can do about it. And then it can either make you give up or make you mad. You know, growing up, my teachers, they what they say, you born in Camden, you're going to die in Camden. Camden is this real poor town in uh, in Jersey. And every single time that they said that, I was like, that's you. <laughs> and, and sure enough, manifested getting out of there. Uh, my dad made sergeant, got us right out of the hood. And, and I haven't looked back. I mean, I went back there to be a cop, but I wasn't like you know, living there the whole time. So, yeah. That's fabulous. There's, there's something else that occurred to me too. When you mentioned epigenetics, it, it, this is, it kind of triggered it in my mind, Linda, uh, because what, what you described, your description was beautifully detailed about, you know, how the process works that leads to, uh, young people, children having the kinds of experiences that they have and, and being traumatized and dealing with them and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, but there's also something that has started happening, I think, within the last generation or so, maybe the last two generations, not across, not across the board, not for all families, but it's happening in more and more isolated circumstances, usually where there's somebody involved in the family, an adult who has some familiarity with the kind of things we talk about here on the program. Um, what's happening is that there are some parents who are recognizing the importance of empowering their children of teaching their children, you are in control. Here's how the law of attraction works. You are able to do these kinds of things. And from my experience, um, particularly working with an alternative school that I helped to found where we, we didn't teach law of attraction, but we basically gave that same kind of empowerment. The kids basically ran their own day. Um, from that experience and also from what I've learned by doing this podcast, I have come to the conclusion that the more that we empower ch children to take control of their day, 
to choose their path, to follow their nose, to, to follow what I call the built-in compass that we all have, which is basically following your inner being, your heart. Um, the more that they, that children do that, the more they're able to get past these traumatic events on their own because they feel like, well, I can do this. I can do this. I can do almost anything. I, my, my dad or my mom told me I can do almost anything. My teacher told me I can do almost anything. So I believe it. And, we, and it, it becomes an entirely different dynamic. So I'm not saying this is happening across the board. Obviously, there's a lot going on in our broader society than that. But in those areas, in those families, in those um, society, you know, small, small social societies, uh, schools like the one that I helped to found and so forth, where it is being applied, amazing things are happening. And, and Neil, you kind of sort of had a piece of that with your upbringing, not quite to the perfect degree because your, your father was more absent than anything else, but you had sort of an empowerment in that you said, okay, well, I'm in charge of my own food. I'm in charge of when I'm going to go to bed. I'm in charge of getting to school and so forth. And, and to the degree that you had that, you also had the opportunity to explore it and to play with it. And so when it came time for you to make decisions later on about where did I want to go with my career? Did I want to stay in Camden? No, did I want to leave Camden? You actually had a degree of empowerment that perhaps your friends didn't have simply because you had that experience. Not, none of them. Most of them are, are still in the hood uh, thinking that they don't have the power mm-hmm. to get out generation after generation. But, you know, my, like I said, my dad was always some kind of supervisor. He was always leading a team, mm-hmm. which in my mind, it just felt right for me to be that leader. And so when someone who's supposed to be the leader is telling me I'm never going to do anything, I, I just can't see that. <laughs> like, wait a minute, you're the leader of this classroom of 30 kids. My dad's a leader of a police department. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to listen to you right now. <laughs> yeah. And that's that, that's that personal power coming through because you were, in, in certain ways, you were empowered. And you said, hell no, that's not going to happen to me. Forget that one. And that was, that was my dad. He used to, when he was a sergeant, he would take on lieutenants and captains and they were scared of him. Even mm-hmm. the chief of police was scared of him. He was only a sergeant. Um, and I saw that and I was just like, if he could do that, you know, a minority Spanish sergeant can, can scare the chief of police. <laughs> and he's my dad and I'm learning everything from him. Then I can do a lot too. And, uh, yeah, definitely flipped the script and I, I tore it up. I took it. I took the rings. <laughs> and, and Linda, the, uh, the the alternative school that I created is called the Sudbury Model School. Um, we created it in 2002, and it's based on a school in Framingham, Massachusetts, outside of Boston, that was founded in the, in the late 1960s. Uh, and when we created our school, it was really fun after we first got the school open to watch how the kids reacted to it, because they were all kids. That, that these were not. Um, like five or six year olds just entering school age. They, they had been in school for years. Many of them, some of them were in high school, some were in junior high school. You know, there was like a range there. And almost every single one of them came in with the mentality that says, okay, where's the adult who I have to model and find out what it is that they want me to do? But the school wasn't set up that way. So there was this period of time, and it was an adjustment period where myself and a couple of the other adults who were there as staff members, so to speak, were basically fending off all requests for please define my day for me and, and watching their minds as they learned a new pattern that said, I get to define my day. I get to decide what I'm going to do was fascinating. And then watching what decisions they actually made was also fascinating because the nice thing about a kid is even if the kid has been kind of programmed by our society, when you give them that opportunity and they're able to make that shift, which they're able to do fairly quickly compared to what an adult would do, it, it's you can just see how a kid can can basically reprogram himself without realizing he's reprogramming himself mm-hmm. just he by making changes. He don't got the bills and the politics right. and gas prices. He doesn't have all that stuff going on. None of that. Yeah, I, I went from I was it was second half of fifth grade. Every meal was planned for me. Everything I did after school was planned for me. To it's all you. What are you gonna do today? Mm-hmm. You know, because we moved into an apartment and my dad was still putting up the hours and it was that was my awakening. It was like, I got to plan this out. And without all the bills and everything, I was able to have a more pure development of how I was processing things and got meal plans. I discovered how important it was to have meal, have a little bit of money on you. If you get caught in the streets without no no food, 
you know, bottled water. That's when you learn how important all this stuff is. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm so happy that you know that was the situation. People people say even I was talking to a female yesterday. I've been through a bunch of traumatic events. Um, matter of fact, Amy Joy from the, like the movie Enough, brutal brutalized by her husband, uh, ran to Mexico with her kids and hid for years. Um, but her two children are amazing now because of what they saw their dad do. Had that not been the situation, they might have been you know whatever. So it's the good that comes out of these necessary situations. And I say necessary because I, you know, I believe they couldn't have happened any other way. You know, it was meant to happen like that. So it's the good that comes out of these. And I'm glad that it was like that. I love my daddy's my best friend. Now, you know, we talk every day. Um, but that really made me independent and me being independent. That took me everywhere. Still taking me places. Sure. Isn't that wonderful? Man, you guys have such great examples. So <laughs> I am so delighted about your school and being able to help give kids an opportunity to be able to be in control. Um, you know, one thing that our, our normal school system does, in addition to teaching how to read and how to write and how to do some math and some history, there are some things that are either intended or unintended. <laughs> it teaches us that someone else tells me what it is, what is important for me to learn. Exactly. Someone else teaches me and tells me, and, and I, I don't, I don't get to decide for myself what matters, what's important, what to do. And so that's uh, either intended or unintended um, pitfall. And so how beautiful mm -hmm. that you've been able to give people some, the, these kids a chance. And I'm delighted with their resiliency of being able to make that change. And as you were describing that, that, that period of, of time of uncertainty, it's like, what can I be? And it just, it reminds me on a, on a, on a larger scale, like when, um, East Germany, the, the people who were there when after freedom was allowed, there's still that no, uh, you're there's still a cage in your mind even right. if it isn't there physically so and neo i loved your examples and how your your father even though he wasn't there with you physically as much as would be ideal um he was always a presence mm -hmm. his example he was teaching you by his life of what was possible and that's beautiful and your example of like in, in, in enough. And when you see your mom do something and stand up for herself, it almost it's like it gives you permission of sometimes we set kind of a, a roof over our head. Like we can't do mm -hmm. or be anything more than our parents. So if my dad does something awesome, if I see my dad respected, then that means I can be respected. If I see my mom stand up for herself, then that means I can stand up for myself. It's, it's interesting, but we're often, we're, we're looking for what are my limits? What am I supposed to do? And if those limits are removed, or if we see an example of someone doing something good, then it feels like we have permission and the capability of doing it. And that just opens doors. By the way, there's something else I wanted to tell you about, because, um, Neil, you mentioned how uh, they didn't have the responsibility for paying the bills and so forth. But as it turned out, they actually did. And there's a really interesting story that goes along with this. Um, right after we opened the school, now, of course, we opened, um, we actually opened September 11th, 2002. So one year to the day after the tragic event. Uh, and that was deliberate. That was chosen by the kids, by the way. They wanted to make sure that there was a different association with, with the date September 11th. So they wanted to open on that day which was really interesting. Nice. But within about a month after we opened, we were, we were using the facilities of an Episcopal church, you know, a church school type uh, facility. So we were using that facility. And uh, three of the kids, there was a 12-year-old girl and two 13-year-old boys. They were kind of romping around and, and, you know, just you know roughhousing in the nursery room where they had the cribs, right? And one of them jumped into the crib and broke through the crib and broke the crib, right? Well, the school model actually has a way for the students to come together. It's called a judicial committee to basically judicial, you know, just, just figure out how, how are we going to, what's the way to resolve this from sort of a judicial perspective? And it was the very first time we were ever going to do that. We had never done it before. It was a brand new school, right? 
So we, we get into the meeting and it, and it was really just me with those three. We, it was a pretty small school population. And so they were going to be both the, the ones that were on trial, so to speak. And they were also going to be the ones doing the trial. It was kind of a, a mixed situation. And of course, the very first thing, cause they, they haven't really learned the model yet. They haven't really um, taken it in yet, but this was one of the first times they started to take it in. The very first thing they try to do is they turn to me expecting me to resolve the issue because I'm the adult in the room. And they would, you know how kids are, right? They, they will find all different kinds of ways to sneak it in through the back door to kind of come at you. You know, you're, you're the one who's got to solve this one. And I was doing everything I knew how to do to just keep my mouth shut and refuse to do anything. And you could see the frustration on their faces because I wasn't solving their problem for them. And at one point they said, well, we'll, we'll just, we just won't do anything. I said, well, that's fine. Just understand that the church that is letting us use this facility may not want us to stay anymore. And they really liked having the school. So mm-hmm. they couldn't even, they couldn't even escape the responsibility. <laughs> and they finally worked it out. They finally figured out they, they decided they were going to approach the, the church board, you know, apologize for what had happened. They were going to raise some money to get the thing fixed. They, they figured the whole thing out, but watching how they did that was fascinating because first they had to unlearn all the previous expectations and then they had to kind of feel their way together. You know, one person would, one, one of the kids would suggest one thing, another one would suggest another one. It was, it was like a, a brainstorming session on my people who had never done this thing before. Really, really interesting to watch. That's beautiful. Yeah. And how amazing that you were able to keep quiet and allow it took discipline. It. Let me tell you. <laughs> because the natural response is to jump in and try to fix things. That's right. Yeah. We call that enabling. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. I'm not a fan of it. <laughs> no. Not a fan of it at all. Just for personal development. Let people learn on their own sometimes. When it's time to step in, it's time to step in. But until you hit that mark, wait on the sidelines and watch and let people learn. Because even with challenging, because we don't out, always know where the line is. And the way we defined it in that school was the line was that the adult was there to be a resource because we didn't expect the kids to understand how everything could possibly work. You know, so if they had questions, well, how do you do something like this? How do you do something like that? That was my job to help explain how that kind of thing happens. But that was the limit. That's everything it. else was up doesn't there get physical. As long as nobody starts getting ready to go to blows. Right. You let them ride out. Right. Yeah, you want to keep it safe, but. You want to give them the opportunity to just stretch their wings. I love that you brought up the word enabling. That is, I think, a a very common problem that people who mean well default to. Mean well. And so we have this idea of we're we're going to, uh, and and it it fits into welfare models a lot, where I, I would if my desire is for all children to be fed, my desire is that there's, you know, peace and prosperity. The desire is good, mm-hmm. but the method has to actually produce the desire. That having good intentions, unfortunately, is not enough. And a lot of the things that we do in trying to step in and solve other people's problems, which looks compassionate it looks like you're doing a good thing actually strengthens the cage that the people are in to keep them in that place of poverty and and it might be physical poverty or poverty of mind or poverty of spirit where the message is i can't do it by myself someone else has to save me i don't have any power someone from the outside has to come in so I, I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I posted a reel the other day. The guy said something like, uh, I asked God for strength and he gave me challenges. <laughs> I like that. I asked, I asked him for knowledge and he gave me puzzles to solve. Mm. And he went through all the list of things. And it's kind of like that situation. But I want a peaceful world where everybody's happy and everybody eats in every country. But realistically, in order for us to grow, as people and get new technology to make life better and easier, like light switches and airplanes for travel, there has to be failures and there has to be competition 
the right brothers were, were pushing against another set of brothers that were trying to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So those things are necessary. So enabling is the, it's the opposite of growth. You're stripping that person of the opportunity to uh, realize their potential. And with that said, I got to go get my son from daycare. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys. You've been great. It was great to see you again, Linda. And Walt, as always, it's a treat. We'll talk soon. Love you, Neil. See you next week. Love you guys. Later. But, but to carry on what Neil was just saying, uh, there, there's something else that came to my mind. And that is, um, and what you were saying too, Linda, the, uh, the idea of the enabler, the, the person who is trying so hard to help somebody else, but doing it in a way that makes them not be empowered, not not feel like they're in control of their own lives. I think a large portion of that happens because they haven't learned themselves how to be empowered. They, they, they basically are, are working on that tape. You were talking about the subconscious tapes, the subconscious uh, loops that, that, that keep playing over and over again. That comes from those loops. And, and in those loops, I, I, I mean, I really have to, I, I have to intervene. I have to step in because at the bottom of the whole thing is a lack of trust in the other person. I don't trust the other person to go after what it is that is important to them. I don't trust them to be able to figure anything out. I don't trust them to you know, have a sense of what it is they really need deep inside. I don't trust any of that. So I have to, I have to solve it for them. Oh, that is such I, nail on the head. I mean, you just got it. The, um, I love when you brought up the word empowerment enabling versus empowering They are very, very different. So to empower, we need to give the information and the tools, resources, and the trust that you mentioned. We need to step back and allow. And that again means allowing for making mistakes, allowing Mm -hmm. for failure. You you watch people and you think, well, of course I don't trust them because they're not trustworthy. I mean, look what they've done so far. They're a mess or whatever. And to be able to step back and say, well, you know, you've had some experiences. You've made some choices that weren't good. But I still believe that there's something in you. There's a spark. It's there. It just needs to maybe be developed. It needs a chance to grow. But it's in there. And you can do this. And and to kind of uh, piggyback on that. Uh, instead of thinking about them as, oh, they're, they're in a mess. What about thinking, or that they are a mess? How about thinking, well, they're not a mess. They may have made a mess right now, but they themselves are fine. They themselves are, are whole beings. So Ooh, basically changing our way of thinking about them. Separating the yeah. person from the behavior. And that is huge to be that's, able to. We, do we that. call that creating space for them, right? That, that's what the term of creating space is. Creating space means, opening up my perception of that person to include possibilities I hadn't even thought of yet, just accepting them in a non-judgmental way, just the way they are, flaws and all, whatever they might be, that's it's perfectly fine because if I don't focus on the flaws and I focus on the wholeness of the person, then very likely my vibration carries over to them and they change over to focusing on themselves as a whole person. Not all at once, doesn't happen instantaneously. But by creating the space, I make that uh, make, make that a greater potential, a potential that wouldn't have been there if I go in with the idea of, oh, they're so broken. Because if they're so broken in my mind, what do I have to give them? Right. And the idea of that the responsibility to make that change is on me. Mm-hmm. I have to fix them. And yeah. that does a lot of negative things, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. it, it, it doesn't usually help. In fact, it often causes conflict, but it says you're not capable of doing it. You you need me to. And then we feel stressed. We feel Mm. overwhelmed. We feel like a failure because our efforts didn't work. Our our well-meaning efforts to make the world a better place didn't work. And it's because we didn't trust them and we tried to enable rather than empower. So invite rather than trying to force. Yes. That's Absolutely. super helpful. And, and I think uh, then to take it to the next logical, I don't want to use the word extreme, state, to, to the next logical place, and this is where it gets really challenging for the enabler because this is the enabler just can't even begin to see this part, 
you have to at some point be willing to say, you know what? I got to let them make their mistakes. I got to let them just, you know, stumble through stuff. And my job is like the staff member of that school that I helped to create. My job is to be a resource, not an authority, not someone to tell them what to do, not someone to fix their stuff, but to basically say, I trust you to do whatever you need to do, even if it's something that I wouldn't like you to do. I trust you, and I'm here to give you what you are asking for in terms of information when you need it. That's going to be the the, the mode of my support. And that feels challenging. It does. Because at first glance, it doesn't feel like you're being kind and compassionate. It feels uh, from the outside like you're being cruel. You're you're allowing mm-hmm. suffering. You're allowing consequences. Mm-hmm. And uh, from from the big picture, it's allowing growth, right. which is what we what we want. So it's beautiful. It's hard to make these mental shifts sometimes, mm-hmm. especially if we're deeply, deeply entrenched. But sometimes, if we, you know, uh, listen to another perspective, it's helpful. It's like, oh. Is there another way? I, I thought the only way was to, to step in and fix things. That's helpful. Or to be able to um, maybe see it work is helpful. It's like, oh, they went through this. They did it a different way. And it turned out okay. They, they might have maybe had to go. Sometimes when we're not doing well, we have to actually reach the bottom before we can start bouncing back up. That's right. And it happens. And it's unfortunate, but... Sometimes that's what we require. So as we're talking, Walt, about empowering, is it okay if I share just a quick five-minute morning routine that people can do to kind of help put themselves in a good place so that they can have a better day? Sure. We love techniques. We love toolkit. Anything that we can add to the toolbox is a good thing. So by all means, go for it. All right. So this only takes five minutes. It is MMWW, music, movement, words, and water. And I'll quickly explain what to do, and then I'll explain why it works. So the first M of music is to pick a song, something that you love, something that makes you want to sing and dance, makes you feel good, and that's your timer. Most songs are about three to four minutes long. Mm -hmm. While the music is playing, then you do the other M, which is movement. And that's some kind of exercise. It can be standard traditional things like your sit-ups and push-ups. It could be shadow boxing or Tai Chi or stretches or my favorite, which is just to dance along. Dancing, sure. And then when the music is done, we get to the W's. The first W is words. And so you grab a notebook and a pen and you write five things that you're grateful for. And then the last W is water. You drink a bottle of water and that whole thing takes five minutes. But what it does is amazing. So first of all, music, uh, research shows that music can change the way that we feel. It can change our emotion better than anything else. So for struggling with motivation, like I don't want to get up, I don't want to face today. It helps us to be able to feel better and more energized. And also research shows that our brain waves tend to synchronize somewhat to the beat of the music. Oh, yeah. So again, oh, yeah. if we're struggling with motivations, like I don't want to do this, it can literally help jumpstart our brain into activity. And then by having the movement, movement does so many things. It helps to increase and improve our level of energy. Mm -hmm. And it helps us to be able to, um, it it affects the chemistry in our body. It lowers the stress chemicals, the cortisol, and it helps to increase the levels of those feel-good hormones, our our, um, dopamine and oxytocin and all these kinds of things so that we feel better. And it also helps to relax muscle tension. And so it does all these wonderful things to give us this boost of power for the day. Then for words, writing in a gratitude journal, I used to think, well, that's nice for those (laughs) little, you know, Pollyanna people who like to do that sort of thing. But for real people with real problems, you know, there's really no point. But there has been so much research on what gratitude does for our brains and for our mood. First of all, it helps to stimulate the prefrontal cortex area of the brain where our Mm -hmm. conscious thought and our decision making takes place, which is so helpful. It helps us to be better able to act rather than to react. It helps us to be conscious rather than just 
subconscious. And it also helps us to, um, and improves the neuroplasticity of the brain when we're in a state of gratitude, which is necessary for healing, for growth, for resilience, for any kind of adapting to change. So it does all those amazing things and it helps improve the way that we feel. There've been lots of research done on depression and gratitude. And one of my favorite studies, they took a group of people who were struggling with severe depression and they said, all right, all we want you to do is to write three things that went well today, three things you're grateful for. And so they did. And then 15 days later, they came back to check if it made any difference. And they found that 94% of the participants had a significant improvement. They had gone from severely depressed to either moderately or mildly depressed. So it didn't solve all of their problems, but it put them in a better place. And I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious to one thing about that study. You, you said that they uh, asked them to write down three things. Was it just write it down just that one day or were they doing it at a daily? Uh, every, day, every day. Every day. Every day. Okay. Uh, that's a good question because doing something once is not going to magically, it's not like right. a magic wand. It's, you know, these things are, well, you're reprogramming. right? For sure. And then the last thing, the last W is water and drinking water is one of the most overlooked underutilized resources we have to improve our mental, physical, and emotional health and well-being. Uh, our brains are, you know, they're electrical. They have to be able to send those messages. And also, since our brain is about 73% water, then, uh, you know, research shows that if it's dehydrated, as little as 1%, it starts to affect our, our mood and on our function. So these are some simple, simple things we can do. A power-packed five minutes that can help us have a good day every day. I like that, I like that a lot. There's something else that I learned just recently. I didn't know this, and maybe you did, uh, because based on what you're saying there, you could very well have known this, but I didn't know this. Um, when we go through a situation or a circumstance where we're very depressed and very much in despair and so forth, among other things, we're experiencing stress and the cortisol um, experience that comes along with that, that combined with the deep, powerful, negative emotions dehydrates us. The emotions dehydrate us. Ooh, I did know not that. know that. Ooh, how exciting. I love learning new things. And in fact, uh, I, I went through an experience recently that I'm going to detail on a future show where I experienced just that. And, and I realized after this was a friend of mine who's a um, former co-host, actually, Cindy Chavez, she was telling me about this. Um, I, when she explained it to me, it made sense to me because I was in the, in the midst of this challenging situation and I had been trying to hydrate myself because I knew that was one of the things I had to do and I couldn't do it enough. I would drink Ooh. a glass of water and my mouth would still be dry. And she said, that was because the reason you're experiencing that is because you're experiencing all this negative emotion right now and it's drying you out. The, the emotion is actually dehydrating you. That's why you have to keep drinking, drinking, drinking when you're dealing with all this stuff. Crazy. Thought, wow, that's really interesting. So that really just feeds into what you're saying, just how important the hydration part is of that MMWW process that you were talking about. Really, yeah. really good stuff. Hey, this has been a great visit. This has been really fabulous. I, I'm so grateful that you were able to join uh, me and Neil while Neil was able to be here. Um, we do need to get a couple pieces of information. We, you did mention the uh, the website before, but give us the website again. And uh, tell us about your podcast, too, because we didn't really talk about the podcast other than to say that Neil was on it. But give us a little <laughs> hint about that. Yes. So my uh, my website is hopeforhealingfoundation.org. And my podcast is called Linda's Corner. It's Faith, Family, and Living Joyfully. And you can find that wherever you find podcasts. And the website for the podcast is lindascornerpodcast.com. And I am so fortunate to talk to such wonderful people like Neil, like so many awesome people. And I have uh, on my website, I have categories so that you can look, you know, maybe I'm interested in emotional eating. Well, I've tied this and this and this person talking about that, or maybe I'm interested in my relationships, or maybe I'm interested in overcoming adversity or childhood trauma. So, so many different things to just help us become our best selves. Really good. One other thing that I want to say to you before we finish for the day, uh, something that I'm making a practice now here on the program, because I'm realizing just how important this is. You are one of those people, like so many, um, many of the guests on the program, my co-hosts, myself and others, who do all kinds of stuff to help people. And we, we appear on our own podcasts, on other people's podcasts. We write, we create videos. And you're one of those people who does these things. 
And there are many people that who have consumed your material. Who you'll never meet them. You'll never see them. You don't know what's going on with them, but they're being positively impacted by what you're doing, by what you're putting out there. So on their behalf, I want to thank you for what you're doing and thank you for what you're continuing to, be, to do because I think it's important to realize even though you can't hear them saying it, they're grateful for what you're doing. Oh, thank you, Walt. I appreciate that. And thank you for joining us today. This has been great. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to our podcast listeners everywhere. We'll see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody.